Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. It's um, a great joy to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I should say thank you too for reading. Uh, that was word perfect. It was my fault that the extra verses were read because although we're going to focus on verses 12 to the end of the chapter, diving in with now, not that I have already obtained all this, would feel a bit disjointed. So I thought it would help us if we had the first bit of the chapter there as well. Let me pray one more time and then we'll get to Philippians Father, please, in these moments, would you speak and would we listen that you might change us more into the likeness of your Son? That is our goal, and so we pray it in his name. Amen. There is something of an inevitability about the future, isn't there? It rolls around the same speed every day, the same 60 seconds pass in every minute, the same 60 minutes in every hour, and there are 24 of those in every day. And although we might want to uh, 
put the brakes on that. And uh, as you get older, I suppose, it feels like they move a bit quicker, those minutes and seconds, minutes and hours. It's not the case. It just rolls around. There is an inevitability about that. It means that uh, things just keep going. They keep going and they keep going. And because of that, I think our culture broadly has a fear of the future. It reminds us, you see, that we're getting older. It reminds us that uh, the good days are behind us. Our bodies don't work quite the way they used to. Our minds aren't as sharp and incisive as they once were. We're worried. There's an anxiety that our best days are behind us and that what has gone has gone, and therefore that was it. We don't get it again. And so there's a bit of an emphasis, there's a huge emphasis actually, on simply, well, on the one hand, simply trying to manage the slow decline. If we can just prepare ourselves and sort of navigate these, uh, these, this, this decline, navigate it a bit, we'll be okay. And we kind of fear as well about that which the future holds in its hands, that thing that none of us want to talk about, namely death, the great enemy of mankind. There are lots of reasons that we don't talk about death, but one, I think, mainly, is that we don't want it to be real. Like children who see something that disturbs them, and so they cover their eyes and pretend it's not happening. If we can't see it, it's not real. If we don't talk about it, perhaps it won't happen some kind of weird way. We don't like the future. We don't like the idea. The culture certainly doesn't like the idea of the future. Isn't that why things like cosmetic surgery are billion-pound industries. If we can cover the evidences of the decline that we know is real, if we can put it off, we can, it seems, slow the inevitability of the future. And if we can do that, well, it might not be true. It might not happen to us. We've seen it happen to everybody else, but actually we're more optimistic than that, and we might be okay. Now, the atheist tells us that this life is all there is, no hell below us, above us only sky, and because the future eventually swallows us up, that's it. This life is all there is. It's been and it's gone. Because of that, then, there's a huge emphasis, particularly we may say at this point in the West, in this cultural moment, to make, as one author says, the present eternal. And what he meant by that is that in a world without God and without hope, uh, where there's only the end that's up ahead, we've got to do all that we can to invest everything we have to make everything in our experience a wow moment, to almost make it transcendent so that we can get the best out of this life because it's the only life that there is. Because that unwelcome visitor, that one about whom we won't speak, namely death, that lies up the road at some point, we don't know where, we don't know when, but we do know deep within that it is coming Well, we've got to do whatever we can to make the best of this life. That future is going to come in some way. It's going to spoil our fun. So let's live it up now. The Christian comes at things in a completely different way. We look forward to the future. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, the future can't come quick enough. For the follower of Jesus Christ, this life, however many years we get of it, is only the start. We have eternity open before us. And there is so much more to come. Now, throughout the New Testament, 
God's purposes are to have a new heaven and a new earth. When you get to the New Testament, as you read through the Bible story, this future focus is what's laid out in front of us. And the future focus is to this new heaven and new earth where God will dwell with His people. That's what God is doing since the fall of Adam. He is redeeming a people for Himself that He will live with for eternity in perfect communion in glory. Now, film and folklore have done us no favors depicting this future, this new heaven and the new earth. Uh, and the, the, the harp builders are going to be really disappointed when we get there because it isn't all about clouds and harp playing. The new earth is a real physical place. I'm sure there will be harp players there, but not as many perhaps as folklore tell us. But what will happen is we go to this real physical place, a real place where uh, the reality of our physical experience is something that we enjoy. But we will enjoy it in ways that we can never experience now in the fullness because it will be a place that is no longer plagued by the things that plague us in the here and now, the struggles that we have. Our minds will be renewed. So we're no longer plagued by fear or doubt or darkness. There is no longer a temptation to, uh, to sin. And it is a place where our bodies will be renewed, where we will no longer feel those aches or pains or struggles or difficulties. It's a place where justice and peace and above all joy will reign because at the center of everything will be the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom justice and peace and joy is embodied. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 11 of chapter 3, that phrase attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's shorthand, that's a shorthand phrase for glory, for the new heavens and the new earth, the, the home of the righteous, the embodied place where all those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus in this life will be gathered together in the presence of God and we will experience the wonder of all of that. That's what he's talking about in verse 11. The world is going somewhere. This life is not just random. God is bringing His plans together in the world, but Paul's point in our passage this morning is that we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Now, that reality would have been all too obvious to some in Paul's audience in Philippi. They were enduring opposition uh, from the phrases that he uses earlier, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, this group called the, the Judaizers, the religious leaders of the day who were trying to lead people away from the gospel that Paul had been preaching. So he's writing this to people where Christianity was not widely popular and there is pressure to walk away from the faith. Now, maybe that rings a bell with you this morning. You're saying to me, uh, have you come, uh, Nigel, did you invite a guy to come and state the obvious to us that we're not in glory yet? Don't tell me we're not in glory yet. You don't know what it's like in my experience, my workplace, my family, my friends. You don't know what it's like for me. The pressure to turn away from Christ is very real. No, I do. And so does Paul. But it's also true that there are others in Philippi who don't think much about the future at all because they don't think they need to because the future is in their presence. We meet some of these guys in verses 18 and 19 of our passage. They're more interested in the here and now without any regard for the future. Indeed, some scholars argue that this group might think that they are already there. This is as good as it gets. They are living the dream. And don't we know that there are some in our life, some in our, in our churches, 
for whom they have experienced significant material blessing and they don't need to worry about anything. And what's all this fuss about the future? If it can just stay like this, we're good. Previous section, I, was, uh, I say we're going to focus on 12 to the end, but in that first section, verses 8 to 11, Paul talks about knowing Christ, about being found in Christ, about knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. But then verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already achieved my, arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Experiencing the fullness of all of what Paul is talking about here lies in the future. Now, it is important that we start here this morning because it might seem obvious to many of us that we're not yet living on the glorified new earth. Now, I hope it's pretty obvious to all of us that we're not yet living on the glorified new earth, but there are plenty of books around at the minute that purport to be Christian books that are suggesting that we can get pretty close now. Your best life now. You can, you will. It's your time. That kind of nonsense is really popular today. And I think it's popular because we know deep within that that's what we're longing for and that's what we're struggling for, but we can't have it yet. Verse 12 for Paul, perfection, or verse 14, the ultimate prize, the goal to win the prize. That is knowing and being known by the risen Christ in all the fullness of that experience. That still lies in the future. And he says, verse 15, all who are mature will get this. But what Paul is keen to press on us is that this future reality isn't just something that we simply look forward to as a kind of uh, pie in the sky idea that we kind of just hope for the best. No, he's saying that it is a future reality, but it works back into our present by shaping our mindset. And it shapes our mindset in the day-to-day. -day. In fact, that's what it did for him. In verse 17, can you see, as Paul tells the Philippians to imitate him, join together in following my example, he is giving us a pattern to follow. And what we see is that this future heavenward focus should affect our present behavior in two ways. So two, two ways this future focus should affect our present behavior. Number one, it should make us dedicated. Dedicated. Paul makes this point in the parallel statements in verses 12 and then again in 13 and 14. Verse 12, uh, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 13, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal. The language that Paul's using here is the language of athletics, uh, the, the arena, um, physical exertion. Uh, I don't know, do you remember back in London, back in 2012, London Olympics? Brilliant experience for anybody that was in London that didn't use the tube. Um, if you used public transport, it was a dreadful time. Uh, but uh, Mo Farah was a real hero, wasn't he, in 2012? And there was that great uh, 5,000 meters when he 
comes running around and Steve Cram, the camera showed afterwards a footage of the commentators jumping up out of their seats and yelling and screaming. And it was fantastic. We were all backing him. We were all cheering as he went round. But Mo Farah's eyeballs were popping out and his head was back and he was sprinting like mad. His wee skinny arms were pumping like mad as he pushed and pushed and pushed towards the finish line. He was focused on the tape and he was focused on the prize that awaited him there and he strained every muscle to get there. It's that kind of imagery, but there's more to the imagery than that. See, just as the athlete pushes him or herself in the race, just as Mo Farah was going for it as he, as he went for that finish line, so also the rest of the athlete's life is shaped around their dedication to the cause as well. The hours of training, the diet, the regime, the early nights, the family sacrifices, their whole life is, is oriented around their event or their discipline. Their whole life, why? Well, if you ask them, their answer would be simple. Standing on the podium, getting the prize, winning the medal. The future, you see, shapes their present behavior. The reward that they are aiming for shapes their present behavior and their dedication is set up toward that end. And Paul says it is to be like that for those who follow Christ. The past is the past. Back in verses 5 and 6 of the chapter, Paul laid out exactly what laid behind, laid, lay behind for him. All of his pedigree, all of his religious performance, all that people think is valuable in the sight of God. The sort of religious credentials that he, uh, that he might be tempted to trust in. The sort of religious credentials that any of us, if we had them, we might be tempted to trust in. He describes them as rubbish. They're all forgotten. The past is in the past. He dedicates himself. He dedicates everything about his life in the present towards the future reward. What does that mean? Serving others. Serving and giving himself because there's a crown in heaven that is his motivation. The Lord Jesus, he says, has made us his own through the glories of Good Friday and Easter. There is a future prize that awaits you as a believer in the Lord Jesus. You know that. The new earth, the home of righteousness, a perfect experience of life and humanity in the presence of God. And God has called us heavenward to that. And we're to be imitators then of Paul and of the apostles in being dedicated to this kind of single-minded, selfless service. Can I ask you, is your life structured around eternity? Does the future heavenly reward shape the decisions that you make in the present? You'll know if it does by how you spend your time and how you spend your money. There could be lots of other things as well, but those are two big tests. How you spend your time and how you spend your money. If you're investing time, your time and money in building a life of comfort and ease in the here and now, you'll know that you haven't got your mind fixed on the heavenly reward. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward will be costly. 
It can make our lives in the present a bit uncomfortable, like the athlete who pushes herself or himself until it hurts or has to go to bed when their friends are only just starting to go out. But that is the dedication that Paul is calling us to imitate. Living now with the future in view. It will affect the way we do everything. It will affect our jobs. It will affect our family life. It will affect our ambitions, our relationships, our time off. Our future focus should shape them all. If you're going to see the gospel planted in this community, if you're going to see Emmanuel Church Epsom grow and grow and see people won for Christ around here and those that you know and interact with in this, in this area, your future focus is what will motivate the sort of sacrifices that that requires. So Paul is saying, wherever you are and whatever you are doing, the mature Christian, not just the missionary, not just the pastor, not someone who is just set apart for full-time Christian ministry, any mature Christian will dedicate themselves to the cause of Christ because of this future reward. Now, this kind of sacrifice is tough. And there were some in Paul's day who, who just couldn't do it. They seemed, it seemed like they started out with Paul, but for some reason... They took their eyes off the future reward and they stopped pressing on. In fact, they just made their lives in the present. Look at verse 18. For as I have often told you, uh, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Exactly what it is that drew this group away is unclear. Some see the reference to God being their belly as a way of saying it was the pleasures of this life and the pleasures of immorality and greed that led them astray, the, the lure of hedonism. Many have we seen that have walked away from Christ because of that. But I actually think that these people um, who have fallen, the, the, well, so I think these are people who have fallen foul of these Judaizers, the religious guys mentioned in verse 2. So what they've done is they've returned to Jewish rituals about food and things like that, meaning their God is their belly. By requiring circumcision for membership to the people of God, they were glorying something in something about which they should have been ashamed. They were adding then to the cross of Christ. And by insisting that people focus on outward religious performance, they show that their minds are set on earthly things. I think that's what's going on. I think this is, this is a, a, a false gospel, essentially, that has led them astray. Either way, it is a group that Paul points to and over whom he weeps, notice. They have abandoned the dedication to the heavenly prize. Now, whether the temptation for us is that we do that in pursuit of our appetites or by seeking to earn God's favor by our own religious efforts, or pursuing some kind of false gospel that's promising something else, what we're doing is putting ourselves in the driving seat. And because at its heart, pleasing God is about getting ourselves out of the driving seat, as Paul puts it, verse 9, we don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Because embracing the cross of Christ is fundamental to the Christian faith, those who refuse His grace are, verse 18 he says, ultimately enemies of the cross. It could be the pull of instant pleasures that our world is dead set on selling us or the attraction of some kind of other religion People turn away ultimately because they don't believe in or can't wait for the future reward that Paul is talking about here. And I can understand that. If we're honest with ourselves, we can understand that. If someone, if someone calls us to give something up, we need to know that it's worth the sacrifice. Don't we? We're just going to give something up in order to be miserable? No, we need to know that it's worth the sacrifice. And that's why Paul, having called us to this kind of dedication, and have, he has done so in a very direct and unashamed way. Having done that, he reminds us of what it is we look forward to. And here we see that we aren't simply to be dedicated, number one. Number two, we're to be confident. Confident. Paul now takes us into the future towards which we are to labor. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Okay, they've made their lives here in the present, set down roots in this life on earth. No, our citizenship is in glory. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. What he's doing is returning to a point he made in chapter 2 where he concluded the great hymn of Christ, that famous bit about the humility of Christ, by pointing us to the last day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and the whole earth will see the supremacy of Christ. But the citizen of heaven's dedication to Christ, he says, is worth it for two reasons. First of all, our glorification. Our glorification on that future day when Christ returns, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Christ is in heaven now in His glorious resurrection body, and on that day in the future, we will be transformed to be like Him. Aches and pains will be gone. The sense that we can no longer do what we once did will be gone. My uh, uncle loved playing cricket. He was a fine player, good, talented. Uh, he, he did okay, but he had, an, he had an amazing kind of hand-eye talent, very good at that kind of thing. He played for his club side. Uh, he's Australian. Uh, he, well, he died a couple of years ago, but he played for his club side in, in Sydney well into his 60s. And even though he loved the game and had, even in his 60s, real skill, real talent, some of that hadn't left him. He said that he had to give up because, as he put it, his mind would play the shot, but his body wasn't able. There was real sadness for him. He said he could no longer deny that the years were taking their toll and getting the better of him. Now, it might not be cricket for you, but it will be something. Sickness. Depression. Failure. Regret can be an incredibly paralyzing thing, even when we know that our past has 
been taken in the fullness of what Christ did on the cross. We can still live with uh, a sense of failure from our past. Might even be the wounds of what someone or something, someone did to you or what a situation that happened in your life. Those could be psychological, they could be physical. Whatever it is, there will be something that reminds you of your brokenness and your frailness and your I'm made of dustness. But that future day, God will deal with all of that. He will transform your weak and dusty and fragile body and glorify you. Also, think about the struggle with sin. A daily battle that often feels too much to bear. If you're anything like me, you'll think to yourself, can I do this again for another day? As I see my sin and I indulge it and I find myself um, just feeling weaker and weaker. I've been a Christian for 20 years, I think, something like that. And this still dogs my life. You think, I can't do it anymore. I don't have the strength to resist this temptation. I don't have the ability to push against this desire to sin anymore. And then by God's grace, you do make it as it goes. But there is a day coming when all of that pressure and pain will be gone. When all our desires will be, they're crooked and twisted up, they'll just be straightened out. And we'll think clearly and we'll act clearly and we'll act in ways only that are right and pleasing to God. Come thy fount of every blessing. We sing it on that day when free from sinning. I will see his lovely face. Can you imagine how good that's going to feel? Free from sinning. Free from all the effects of the fall. Not just on our bodies, but in our minds and in our hearts. There is a day coming, friends, when your feeble and broken and decaying bodies will be glorified. And Paul is certain, he says, this will happen. Whatever our present humiliation, whatever it is, God will one day certainly transform it into glory. That's a great incentive to keep going. That's a great incentive to adopt the Mo Farah approach to the Christian life, to strain forward to the glorified new body, new mind, new heart. But there's also another reason that we could easily miss that Paul also refers to in verse 20. Have a look. Verse 20. And it is this, our vindication. Back in chapter 1, Paul spoke with certainty about his own vindication by Christ on the day of judgment. And the same theme comes up here. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Remember that on this day, every knee will bow. Every knee. Some will do it willingly, overflowing with joy. And others will be forced to their knees in terror. Either way, the risen Lord Jesus will demonstrate his sovereign power by subjecting all things to himself. For the Philippians, that included the emperor. It included all who had made their lives as Christians difficult. It included, it included all those who, as part of the state, uh, oppression of them naming the name of Christ, 
those knees would one day bow. Everyone who has made uh, a believer's life difficult in this life, oppose them for their Christian faith, they will one day bow the knee. You know that, don't you? That there is a day coming when anyone who has ever mocked you or laughed at you or opposed you because you do what you do for the sake of Christ, their knee will bow. And on that last day, our glorification will work out also for our vindication and we will be seen to have been in the right all along. We live at a time in, in London uh, where the culture is just, uh, on the one hand, thinks that we are daft as daft can be because we want to follow Christ when we could have you know, all of these things that the culture is holding out to us. But uh, it's also pressing in on us more and more now that they also think we're dangerous. So that because we believe what we believe, we're a threat. Well, there's something true about that. We are a threat to the structures that seek to oppose all that is good about human flourishing because we're holding out another king. We're saying, no, we don't bow the knee to you. We bow the knee ultimately to him. But we live at a time when to be a Christian is increasingly difficult. And we need to remember that there is a day coming when we will be seen to be in the right. Those who opposed us will look on as we are welcomed by Almighty God into His glory. And many of them will regret and will regret for eternity every bit of their opposition that seemed so impressive and so clever and so cool at the time. Now, it's not some weird triumphalism. But Paul's point is ultimately that God will out. He will vindicate his own. And that means that we need not fear. So can you see, the future isn't something to fear. The future isn't something to worry about. It is something to set your sights on and to eagerly press on towards because there lies in the future for all of us who name the name of Christ the heavenly prize for which we were created and to which Christ has br is bringing us because that is what he has won for us through his death and resurrection. Have you noticed, uh, perhaps in reading the book of Philippians, have you noticed the note of certainty with which Paul talks about all that God is uh, all that God is doing, the certainty that he can speak about God's heavenly reward. We have been made citizens of heaven because, verse 12, Christ Jesus has made us his own. He has took hold of, taken hold of us. Chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ. And this means, verse 14, that prize is certain. We have a wonderful future and it is guaranteed. It has been purchased for us at the cost of Christ's life and it is given to all who believe in his gift of grace. Therefore, what lessons have we learned at Trinity West that I would want to part, impart to you here a few years further back in the process? 4 verse 1, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. 
Paul started chapter 3 with the exhortation to rejoice in the Lord, saying that that is how you'll be kept safe. As people oppose you for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your faith in Christ, the way that you persist, the way that you keep going, the way that you don't walk away is that you rejoice in the Lord. You don't turn away from that that you enjoy. So rejoice in the Lord. And then he makes clear that you will rejoice in the Lord by not turning to yourself, but by turning and returning to Christ. And now he can add that you rejoice in the Lord also because he has purchased a future for you that will be perfect. There is a glory that awaits. So stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he has done for us. Thank you that all that he has won for us. And we pray that you would help us to be dedicated. But as we, as we do dedicate ourselves to walk humbly with you, with the future in view, we would be confident that one day we will be glorified and we will be vindicated because of all that he has done. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.